Hey, have you checked the website recently? If not, then go take a look at followfridaypodcast.com because I've been making some improvements over there. I'm making it easier to find each episode of the show in your favorite podcast app, and I've also added a brief explanation of the Follow Friday Patreon page over on the homepage. I talk about the fact that this is a completely independent podcast. We don't have any network or big money behind us, so any amount that you can chip in on Patreon is greatly appreciated. Now, if you can't donate for literally any reason, that's totally fine. You can still help us out for free by telling your friends, your family, and your followers about Follow Friday. And if you really love it, then please go over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star review. That said, if you can donate over at patreon.com slash follow Friday, then you will unlock an extra long version of today's interview with Charlie Harding from Switched on Pop. That extended interview includes a bonus follow that you won't hear in the public feed. If you're listening to this episode in the Patreon feed and you've already heard the first four follows, then check the show notes for the time of follow number five. No matter how you show your support for Follow Friday, I really appreciate it. So thank you. And now, here's the show. Today is a good day to meet some new friends. Hey! Everyone make a way. The show is a buffet of folks you should know. Hey! So let's have a swirl. Well, that's enough for a place. I'm Eric Johnson. Welcome to Follow Friday, the podcast about who you should follow online. Every week, I talk to creative people about who they follow and why. This is a guided tour to the best people on the internet, led by your favorite writers, podcasters, comedians, and more. If this is your first episode of the show, take a moment now and please follow or subscribe in your podcast app. Today on the show is songwriter Charlie Harding, the co-host of the Vulture podcast Switched on Pop. On every episode, Charlie and his co-host, musicologist Nate Sloan, pull back the curtain on the making and meaning of popular music. You can find Switched on Pop wherever you listen to podcasts and on Twitter and Instagram at Switched on Pop. And you can find Charlie on Twitter at Charlie Harding. Charlie, welcome to Follow Friday. Thank you. Hello. I'm so glad to have you here. I want to start by talking about a mini-series of episodes that you and Nate are currently running on Switched on Pop about one of our greatest living icons of pop music, Britney Spears, and I do mean that earnestly. I specifically wondered if you have any thoughts about you know how the internet has shaped Britney's career, this being a podcast about internet culture. You know, because she came up in the Napster era, and then the recent end of her conservatorship was basically a holiday on Twitter, it felt like. But, you know, do you have any thoughts on, like, how being a star in this age, you know, shaped her as a musician? I'm going to have to go out on a limb here because the conceit of our entire series was she's the most overexposed figure in celebrity culture. And the thing that we have not been doing is paying attention to her music. And so we just went back and listened to all of her biggest songs and intentionally ignored the larger sort of meta narrative around her identity. That said, there are two major ways that the Internet has shaped our relationship with Britney Spears. One is I think it's important to note that she launched at the height of the CD era. And one of the challenges for people who were CD era artists is that 
billboard rankings, sales, engagement, all of the tools to get your music heard fundamentally change, not just with Napster, but also with streaming and maintaining a dedicated audience moving from CDs into streaming has been very challenging for people. And you can see it in her releases. The latest albums haven't performed as well. I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge the fandom around Free Britney, who have played a significant part, not just in the awareness and ending of her conservatorship, but I think raising awareness about conservatorship more broadly. And so that could never have happened without internet communities. And then looking at other musicians who are active today, who do you think is a pop musician who's either the best at using the internet or just especially linked to the internet? Because I feel like because Britney kind of spans these two eras in culture and in music. But I guess I'm thinking about like internet native musicians, I guess like Lil Nas X or Lizzo or who, who, who do you think is the best of the internet? I think the best person on the internet, regardless of being a musician, is undeniably Lil Nas X. He knows how to hack people's brains for awareness and to manufacture controversy that are often quite humorous, yeah. but also have deeper meaning. So with his song, Montero, Call Me By Your Name, he is seen dancing on the devil and the religious right had a heyday on Twitter and then the queer community was like, well, actually, this is the most amazing song we've ever heard. And you create these <laughs> two vying groups online talking about this singular object around his song. And he's just sitting back happy. So I think Lil Nas X is the best. And then, you know, there's just tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of very talented people who build niche audiences and music that I couldn't name. Right. Maybe a, a good example, though, would be someone like not niche, Adam Neely. I would say not niche just because he has millions of followers across YouTube and other platforms. But he's a he's a YouTuber who does the most in-depth stories about music theory, which you would think would be hmm. super niche. But the way that he reports them are so good that he has both Berkeley School of Music graduates listening, watching his show as well as people who know nothing about music. And so there are ways that people are able to find these sort of super niche little categories of like, I'm into, there's a YouTuber I know who like makes guitar pedal demos on the harp. And it's a very popular channel. There's there's ways that people (laughs) bust through. So I I just think there's so many that I can't name beyond that uh, because they're they're serving 5,000 people very dedicatedly. That's a really good point, which is like what we used to consider to be the, you know, the breakout success of, you know, topping the billboard charts and all that. That's not necessarily the most important metric right now in terms of what success looks like online. You can have the most hardcore, passionate online fans, and that may be all you really need. I hate the term creator because I I think it's just too broad and often fails to capture. I go back and forth on this. It doesn't capture people's particular talents. Right. Like if you're an extremely talented musician, you're not a creator, you're actually a musician, but you probably are having to create video and other things that engage people. That said, creators have created meaningful competition to top celebrities such that they are having to mimic and participate in those same platforms. The best example would be like Jason Derulo, pop star who is now TikTok icon and was like, all right, I'm getting in on these dances because if I want to maintain relevancy and have a longer pop career, which, you know, a pop career is probably a lot like the NFL draft. You know, you're lucky if you get a couple of seasons. And so 
I, you, you see the biggest celebrities in the world are now mimicking what, I'm sorry, content creators have been doing <laughs> for years. Want to hear more of Charlie talking about music? You got to go listen to Switched on Pop. But for now, let's find out who Charlie Harding follows online. You can follow along with us today. Every person he recommends will be linked in the show notes and in the transcript at followfridaypodcast.com slash Charlie Harding. It's Follow Friday. Charlie, before the show, I gave you a list of categories, and I asked you to tell me four people you follow who fit in those categories. Your first pick is in the category, Someone Who Makes the Internet a Better Place, and you said Scary Pockets, which is on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Scary Pockets. Uh, and this is a funk band. I had never heard of them, but I realized that I have actually met one of the people who's in it. But first, let, let's talk about the band. What's the what's the deal with Scary Pockets, and, and why do you love it so much? Yeah, so Scary Pockets, I think, are the most fun cover band on the internet. They are a mashup of so many different concepts that are so well executed. So, A, cover songs on YouTube, wildly successful. Very well done cover songs in a funk style even more successful and then add in some of the internet's best musicians. You know, some of these people that we're talking about before, like maybe they don't have millions of followers, but they might have hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands, thousands, and they're wildly talented. What scary pockets does is they take a well-known song, bring in special guests to join the amazing house band, which are made up of some of the best session musicians and players in Los Angeles and then, yeah, you get the special guest who brings in their own audience and every single video, you're going to get an amazing cover of a song you love. Like, I love the White Stripe Seven Nation Army version that features Elise Trow, who is one of my favorite YouTube creators. put this all together and it's just the best party in a video that you can find and if you ever actually need a playlist of like totally party safe music you just throw on any scary pockets music in the background and everyone's going to be happy yeah you mentioned that the, these are really talented session musicians could you briefly define what what is a session musician oh yeah a session musician is someone who is remarkably talented who can play basically anything and get pulled into recording sessions usually in the major music cities so Los Angeles, Nashville, Atlanta, New York, London, when another major artist needs, hey, I need a, some drums on this song and we don't actually have a drummer in our band, they call in a session musician. And session musicians often play on thousands and thousands of records and you know, they never get the credit that they deserve, but they are behind the things that you love. A lot of these session musicians and special guests who come on, who appear in these videos, and then there's two permanent members of Scary Pockets, Ryan Lerman and Jack Conti. Um, and depending on your bubble, you might know Jack as the CEO of Patreon or from his other band, Pumplamoose. Um, how did you get introduced to, uh, to to Scary Pockets? Was it through one of those musicians or one of the session musicians? How did you become a fan? It was through Jack because I had followed his original band, Pumplamoose, and they did a lot of really fun covers they also did a lot of original material. Maybe it's a little more laid back or tame. It's like it's the mellower version of Scary Pockets and the energy of Jack Conti, who I don't know exactly how he works today, but at one point he was still like only making a salary as a creator on Patreon, even though he was also the CEO. Huh. He's an amazing pianist. He's a ball of joy to watch. So 
he created scary pockets and I inevitably was going to start following it, but it's more that like it keeps finding me because mm. of all of these other guests that they have on the show or songs that I like. And so it's algorithmically very successful, I think, because it's just always in the constellation of other things that I like and then it gets recommended to me again and again. Yeah, the YouTube algorithm, it, it, it will keep on hunting you forever. Yeah. <laughs> so how does Scary Pockets make the internet a better place? And what is something that the rest of us can learn from their example? Ooh, primarily that it's just fun, that the people who are participating in it are full of ecstatic joy. That's sort of the starting place. And then it adds on the fact that they are savvy and know everything that they're doing, I think, very effectively, such that they're like when they do these sessions, they bank a ton of songs. They do a ton of songs in a single recording kind of thing so that they have a bunch of video to put out over time because it's very highly produced, which is expensive. And so they they figured out how to make something very good in a reasonable sort of way. And yeah, I think that just the very talented people having a good time translates really well for me. It's not too serious. It's very silly, but it's really good. Yeah, just generally the the, the best way if, you, if you're a, to use the word again, content creator online ooh, and you're ooh. trying to keep costs down, you can do something by yourself or you can do what I'm doing where I, you know, interview a different person or you maybe what you and, and Nate do where you're, it's your two co-hosts and sometimes it's just the two of you on the episode, right? That's like the classic way of keeping costs down. But I love the Scary Pockets model of like, no, we are going to bring in these extremely talented folks you haven't heard of and we are going to commit to that as like the model for yeah. these videos. You know? There's not a lot of people that play effectively to the algorithm that I, I where I think that the algorithm somehow enhances the material that they make. And yet I think they've just found this very they've threaded this needle where actually this is just what I want and it serves the YouTube algorithm very successfully. I don't mean to be a total cynic, but I find that my TikTok algorithm has a very particular aesthetic, which doesn't give a lot of space for long form thought out discourse, which is why I love podcasts, right? Exactly. <laughs> and, it, and the format is not meant for that. And so instead we get a lot more irony and silliness and fun, like all things that I also want in my life. But the algorithm often just, yeah, I think leads towards formats that the medium is the message, if you will. And I think in the case of Scary Pockets, they have actually, they have married those things effectively. Definitely. Well, before we move on to your next follow, I just want to jam for 30 seconds. Other than Seven Nation Army, which you mentioned earlier, what's another Scary Pocket song that you love and what makes it so great? Oh, my gosh. OK, well, now we just have to go look at them because there's, they're, they're countless. I watch them all the time. <laughs> I just watched a, a cover of Julia Michaels Issues uh, the other day, which I loved. I'm just I'm just scrolling through the ones that I have recently. Yeah, viewed. yeah. I mean, A, there's way too many. I need to go. Like, now I actually just want to go and watch all of them. We're going to pause the podcast for two hours while we all go catch up on Scary Pockets. <laughs> okay. Here's my favorite one. My favorite video is their version of Daft Punk's Harder, Better, Faster, Stronger. Ooh. Done on a rooftop. And the lead player is playing Talkbox, which is where you put this funny tube in your mouth and you play a keyboard and it makes this wild sound. <laughs> it's kind of like Daft Punk, who 
when they made their 2013 album Random Access Memories kind of pulled back all of the electronics and were like, actually, we're a disco band. The version that <laughs> Scary Pockets does is kind of like, well, actually, Daft Punk is a funk band. It's the best. Well, that was Scary Pockets, which is on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Scary Pockets. It's Final Friday. Charlie, let's move on to your next follow. I asked you for someone you're jealous of, and you said Kat Zhang, who is on Twitter at KatZhang1, and that's spelled C-A-T-Z-H-A-N-G, and then the number one. Kat is an award-winning assistant editor at Pitchfork, and she specifically covers the intersection of music and internet culture, which means I should probably get her on this show ASAP. 100%. But why does she make you jealous? Just because she finds stories that I wish I'd covered. You know, there's people who work in your field who you're you're always watching of like, wow, you got the story that I wish I found. And I think that she not only reliably does that, but also has a way of thinking about the role of internet and music in a way that I'm never capable of doing. Hmm. What I mean specifically is that she frequently covers the TikTok beat, which I think is an extremely hard thing to cover. A, because we all have specific algorithms. So like, how do you know how to cover TikTok? Exactly. The actual navigating it is hard enough. But TikTok for me puts me in a total malaise, an absolute stupor. It's the thing of just melt the brain escapism. And she's able to apply the critical theory level of thinking around what's happening on TikTok and then write highly entertaining, very well done journalism about TikTok culture. Yeah, because like the, there, there are certain songs that I think of as TikTok songs that, you know, are, are more like meme songs where they're playing underneath videos. But it's also this incredibly important launching platform for new artists, right? Like, this is the place where they are all fighting it out now to get noticed. Can their songs be used in in a TikTok video? Totally. And the thing is, I think that most how did a song happen via TikTok stories are not interesting. Because it's like, there was a song, someone made a silly video, that silly video went viral, that became a trend, that song is now huge, that story has been told many times and people have made music careers out of it. Now, it is like trying to play the lottery. It's a very hard thing to get that to happen. But this story around, it's not that interesting. Whereas Kat is going to be like, let me tell you why this song from the 1980s, this Japanese city pop song that has not had a major life in forever, actually has had much larger cultural resonance where it comes from, why it's happening. It's not completely random. And I'm going to write a 10,000 word feature length article about it and totally blow your mind out. Full disclosure, we had Kat come on our show and re-report that story to us about Japanese city pop. Okay, so here's another thing you're going to have to define, which is what is Japanese city pop? Japanese city pop is a genre of music that was very big in the 1980s. That is a very laid back, groovy kind of thing that is its own music. You Mm -hmm. might feel some genre connections to Disco, fusion, jazz, new wave, maybe even yacht rock. And it was sort of like peak 80s Japanese economies booming. It feels like 80s music. And and, and so it's come back thanks to the internet, thanks to TikTok and other folks who have sort of found a way to incorporate the sound of, of city pop 
into what they're making, like new music that they're making, right? There's a whole little mystery that you have to uncover, and I'm not going to tell you this one right now because you're either going to go read Kat's <laughs> article about the history of Japanese city pop, or you can listen to her on her show. Yeah, spoilers. Uh, well, yeah, so without spoiling anything too grand, what's something from one of Kat's appearances on your show, either about TikTok or about uh, city pop, What what's something that she has taught you that has you know surprised you, blown your mind? She first came on the show a couple of years back to report on when TikTok was having its first wave. And she was able to define some very particular aesthetics that exist on TikTok, particularly that there is a desire to show things in a very kind of DIY sort of way. We see artists like Lil Nas X going on TikTok with the blurriest background, nothing high fidelity, and the music that was preferred on the platform started to mirror that. You know, specifically people would create bass that sounded really bad. Huh. Earth-shaking, distorted, kind of like what bad bass sounds like coming out of your iPhone or out of your laptop. Right. They would actually want that sound to be the sound in the underlying track because it sounded more real, if you will. And so I think that the visual component of TikTok has had a very significant impact on the kinds of sounds that people want to hear. Less polished, uh, more sounds like you could have just done it in your bedroom and recorded it with your phone. Is that of a piece with the that YouTube video that everyone uh, watches that lo-fi beats to study and <laughs> relax to or whatever? Is, is, that, is that lo-fi? Is that the same thing? Or is that a different, musicologically, is that a different thing? I think that's a different phenomenon because that's that's more of a YouTube okay. phenomenon. We've reported on that one as well. And and that's yeah. more uh, people truly needing something to do in the background. Obviously, a lot of music on TikTok is in the background. But one of the other trends that she talked about is that a great TikTok song often needs to have a significant moment of change or like some kind of funny sound effect mm. that would then accompany a strong visual moment. You know, it's it's kind of it's it's kind of like music that works well to slapstick kind of comedy. Yeah, I guess going back to Little Nas X again, like Old Town Road, the song that made him crazy famous, it has that drop where suddenly the song shifts from this plausibly could be a country song into, no, this is a proper, you know, hip-hop beat. Yeah. Exactly. And that's just when a content creator is going to make some wild visual change on their video. Exactly. That's when everyone tur- turns into cowboys for the Yeehaw Challenge, yeah. <laughs> Well, before we move on to your next follow, is there anything else we should say about Kat? Like anything else about her her writing or anything else that makes her such a, a great follow? Yeah, I think for a lot of people, following music can be a kind of inside baseball. You know, a lot of Pitchfork was developed off of sub-scenes of music of people who are really dedicated to reading blogs. I think everybody should read Kat's writing because she has a way of connecting music to larger issues within culture and it's so smart and so well-researched and so well-written that it's music writing that everybody should read. Very well said. Well, that was Kat Zhang, who is on Twitter at KatZhang1. We are going to take a quick break now, but we'll be back in a minute with Charlie Harding from Switched on Pop. I want to tell you about another podcast I love, and I think you're going to love it too. Upworthy Weekly, Upworthy's first podcast, is a lighthearted look at some of their most popular and engaging stories. Delivered to your podcast feed every Saturday, it's the perfect way to shake off the Monday to Friday news cycle with a refreshing dose of good news. Join Todd Perry, one of Upworthy's most prolific writers, 
and Allison Rosen, a podcaster, writer, and TV personality best known for the show Allison Rosen is Your New Best Friend, as they go through the week's best stories about humanity. Subscribe to Upworthy Weekly wherever you get your podcasts. It's Follow Friday. Welcome back to Follow Friday. Charlie, let's move on to your next follow. I asked you for someone you have a crush on, and you said Bess Kalb, who is on Twitter <laughs> at Bess Bell, which is spelled B-E-S-S-B-E-L-L. Bess is an Emmy-nominated comedy writer and the best-selling author of Nobody Will Tell You This But Me, and you are also being incredibly cute and charming because Bess is also your wife. But uh, yeah. you have to convince the rest of us here. What makes her a great person to follow online? Oh, she's the funniest person on Twitter. I feel like I have the unique privilege of getting to watch someone who is immensely funny go through their creative process. If there's ever a decent joke on my show, it's probably because I ran it by her. (laughs) She used to write late night television. And you can take any topic and be like, joke. And she'll just be like, here's a list of 15 jokes. Like when Nate and I put out a book version of our podcast also called Switched on Pop, we're like, what would be some great alternative comedic titles to the show? And then Bess just starts like pitching idea after idea. I have to pull them up, okay? Mm-hmm. Let me see if I can find them. Oh, yeah, please do. Instead of Switched on Pop, these were her ideas for what you should call the book. Exactly. All right, so I'm just gonna, I'm gonna have to like do a deep scroll back on my Twitter feed. Here we go. Is this it? Come on, come on. Yes, I got it. Okay, hit me. For whom the Beyonce Knowles. This is terrible. Harry Popper and the prisoner of jazz ska bands. (laughs) Harry Popper and this goblet's on fire. Harry Popper and the order of the French band Phoenix. That's (laughs) Harry Popper and the half-blood artist formerly known as Prince. A Tale of Two Swifties. The Bandmaid's Tale. The Handmaid's Tailor. Freak Harmonics. (laughs) I basically said, can you give me your absolute most ridiculous puns? Oh my god, it's amazing. I'm an appreciator of all puns, ridiculous and not. (laughs) The Beauty and the Beastie Boy, Heart of the Darkness, the band The Darkness, Fahrenheit 451 Direction. (laughs) I think the book would have sold better if we used one of those. That that one probably would have sold pretty well, I think. Yeah. So she's great at uh, coming up with endless uh, variations on very silly little jokes like that. Um, But her Twitter feed is probably the most fun place to follow because it's a great combination of... uh, very astute political commentary, uh, but always framed with great comedic irony. Yeah, and I, I was looking at, I was cracking up at some of her jokes about about your kids. Uh, she recently tweeted, everyone shut up. Due to a miscommunication, my kid thinks I write Peppa Pig, and he's been really nice to me all day. So I need you all to go with it and reinforce it should we ever meet out on the street. <laughs> How did you and Beth meet originally? This is probably kind of on brand. Not many people know this. We met at the end of college, but one of the places that we really first bonded was singing Taylor Swift karaoke, the song Oh my gosh. Love Story. And so I think <laughs> it was just made to be. I mean, that's that's what did it. That sealed the deal. Thanks, Taylor. Taylor's done a lot for my career. The podcast was just a fun project that we started. And then as soon as we started covering stuff by Taylor, all of a sudden the show just blew up. See, you mentioned that you kind of get to be audience to her process as a comedian, right? Like, does she run jokes by you the way that you run jokes by her for Switched on Pop? Like, did you just to get a laugh or not? Or what does that process look like from the the other side of the, the Twitter feed? No, no, no. She's far too talented for needing my perspective. Uh, <laughs> it's usually I only see things once they're published. Whereas I am terrified of writing a headline or trying to crack a joke. And so, uh, yeah, she is my editor. 
I really admire, um, she has a lot of bravery on Twitter. She gets in the shit with some of the worst people there, calling out folks like you know, Louis C.K., J.K. Rowling, who do and say really reprehensible things. And then when their fans show up in her mentions, you know, she doesn't back down. It, it takes a level of grit that, honestly, I don't have. <laughs> yeah, well, it really started back when the last president became president. We don't have to say his name. And because she was an exceptionally talented late night writer whose job it was to write jokes, uh, you know, here's, here's, a, here's a line here's a paragraph, make 30 jokes out of it in the next 20 minutes. She was really good at responding to his particularly hate-filled tweets. And so for the first, I believe it was the, uh, I believe it was the first month of the beginning of that presidency, she subscribed to Twitter alerts on her phone of everything he would tweet. And oh, then no. she would tweet back with a joke that always was sort of like the opposite of the hatred. There was always some like level of kindness, but also you know, a truth bomb kind of joke in there. And yeah, in the process garnered a lot of followers, including some of the more reprehensible people on the planet, you know, some of the most really terrible groups uh, that, you know, white supremacists, these kind of folks. And so she has a lot of grit because she's been able to, there's just been a lot of gnarly people who tweet at her on a daily basis. And she knows how to dispel hatred very effectively through humor. And uh, yeah, a lot of respect for that. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the thing is that for so many folks, if you don't have probably the specific set of skills that she has, right? For so many folks, if they get brigaded by this sort of person online. Oh, do not try this at home. You have to be professional. Exactly. Professional driver in a closed course and all that, you know, because getting swarmed with this sort of attention, it can be enough to make a lot of people, including trained people, including folks who are communicators and celebrities and all that, it can make them quit Twitter. So uh, honestly, respect for, <laughs> for for sticking in there, you know? Oh, we have become the firebrand at one point of the far right when they decided that we were trying to cancel Beethoven. It was an absolutely <laughs> absurd thing where we made a four-part series about the power and the history of the Fifth Symphony in partnership with the New York Philharmonic. And yeah. a bunch of far, far, far right firebrands decided that a mild level of critical discourse plus like a ton of celebration about the meaning of that music resulted in us trying to cancel Beethoven. And I actually didn't know the far right oh embraced God. Beethoven, but it included like Ben Shapiro and Senator Tom Cotton and like the ambassador to Kosovo were many people were actually manufacturing quotes of us saying that mm -hmm. Beethoven is the source of white supremacy. And we got to see how the entire brigade of far right nastiness gets developed out of first fringe blogs and then slowly into traditional media. It was truly like manufactured material that did not at all represent the actual work that we did. And uh, 100%. Yeah, it's yeah. just like uh, Twitter is that's why people think that Twitter is a dumpster fire because people are very good at completely misconstruing work and misquoting and creating controversy where there, there actually isn't any. Oh, don't worry. I'm sure Elon Musk will fix everything. <laughs> Thank you, billionaire overlords. We depend on you. You must save us. No, 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 no. Well, that was Bess Kalb, who was on Twitter at Bess Bell. It's Final Friday. We have time for one more follow today. Charlie, I asked you for someone who's an expert in a very specific niche that you love, and you said Dan Worrell, who is on YouTube at Dan Worrell, and his name is spelled D-A-N-W-O-R-L. 
R-A-L-L. Dan's YouTube description is straight to the point. Sound design and sound engineering tutorials. So so break that down for, for, the, for the lay people. What, what are the sort of videos that Dan makes? Dan makes tutorials about how to be a better sound engineer, mix engineer, music producer, which, yes, honestly, I feel like I'm probably speaking to a small group of folks that are listening right now. And yet, I think we all have something to learn from Dan. He makes the most knowledgeable videos about some very esoteric material that is hard to understand. And he does it in not only an extremely soothing voice, but with clarity, authority. His explanations could not be more articulate. And he helps people understand pretty challenging concepts with very digestible videos. Now, if you're really into sound like I am and like procrastinate by going on YouTube to learn about sound design and engineering and things like that, then this is the person you need to follow. He, one of the few people who is truly an authority. That's the thing. Like there's so many people who, who pose as authorities on topics uh, on the internet. And he's actually an expert. Actually an expert. And it's so rare that you get expert material, especially when so much of the internet is becoming paywalled, where you get like maybe the two minute taste of the thing. Like, and if you want to actually hear from the experts, it's going to cost a lot of money. I understand people should be paid for the labor. Absolutely. And yet for those of us who might not want to, or be able to subscribe to certain things, like he's one of those few people where you're like, wow, I'm getting expert knowledge. And so even if you're not into sound design, it's like, it's, it's someone worth watching because you might figure out how to communicate effectively. And he does it all without showing his face, which is also very rare on the internet. If mm-hmm. you're making videos and yet has a very dedicated following her, like more Dan, more videos, please teach us. <laughs> right. There's, there's a class of YouTube, who every thumbnail is like them making the same like shocked face and the, and, the, and the thing just like because because faces get people to, to click on them there is a whole algorithm yeah. game there so but dan is just trading on i am on his expertise and that, that's it that's the the strength of his his content yeah i love that yeah i mean i get it if you are making your living off of youtube you got to put your your face on that thumbnail because it will cause people to click we're talking about you know again the, the algorithm having certain propensities and mm-hmm. you have to just follow it and and yet for some people who I think make very credible material, a lot of their thumbnails do look very tabloidy and that is yep. just what works. I do like people that are just kind of strong in their ways and say, no, I, this is just about the information. And he's kind of one of those folks. So as a musician, how much of your time is spent like experimenting with sound design, You applying what you've learned from following Dan? Are you, are you when you when you're procrastinating by watching his videos, are you picking up stuff that then you are bringing the next time into your editing software or is it more of an academic you know this is just an interesting fact about how sound works that doesn't really translate in that way i think i'm coming at it from two directions at the same time but probably both are motivated by insecurity which is that uh, (laughs) i have to report on songs made by immensely talented people and i think that any journalist who doesn't have some insecurity about the legitimacy of their thought and research probably needs to take a second look at themselves because you can never under a deadline accumulate all the information. You can only accumulate the best information 
it within that time and be certain within like 99% I got it. But you know, you're always there, there's a reason why there's corrections because sometimes you just miss one little thing. So for me reporting on music, I'm like I need to understand every little thing about how these songs are made. So I'm very strange in that I frequently will actually recreate songs before I think about how to report on them because I almost want to get inside the creative mind of the person making it. That's one angle I attack it from. And the other is just like, I also make music and I love music and I love sound. And there is sort of a just larger, deeper desire to understand everything there is to understand about sound. And and he has layers of knowledge about advanced engineering concepts, which actually apply to everyday music making that are too esoteric to learn about in any other way. So I do end up then applying these tools. And it is, as I said, like if this is my number one form of procrastination from doing my core job of making a podcast about popular music. It's like learning the ancillary details about popular music that I one day may apply, but are not immediately relevant to the exact assignment that I have at any given week. Uh, And this is how I procrastinate. And what about for like the average music listener, someone who does not do either or any of the things that you do? Do you think that if they were to watch Dan's videos, would they get stuff out of them that would make them... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> for lack of a better word, better music consumers? I don't know. Probably some of them and then others are are definitely way too out there. I think that yeah. you have to probably be making audio in some way to really dig it. So maybe this is not yeah. the best recommendation. No, no, this is a niche. This category is for, for niche, niche follows. I love it. Great. <laughs> I, I, think, I think that this is your follow if this is your world. And it's just kind of, I wanted to highlight Dan because I think that there are is such a, a dearth of people like him. And so, you know, if you're if your thing is like knitting or whatever, whatever your thing is, like go find the Dan Worrell equivalent within your niche. It's, they usually don't have great looking websites. Their video production is never quite as good. Their communication skills are the best and they actually really know their stuff. I often find that if someone's website kind of looks like it was made on GeoCities, it's either like they have no idea what they're doing or actually they're the world's <laughs> leading expert in that thing. <laughs> it, just, it just made me think of something a friend told me in, in way back in high school where he says like, I don't want to learn how to play violin from a 14-year-old virtuoso. I want to learn it from a you know 70-year-old woman who is perpetually angry at the world and just <laughs> go, go, goes about things in the most unpleasant way possible. You know? <laughs> For sure. If it's possible to interpret what you've learned for a more casual audience. What is something that you have learned from following Dan's videos that has really stuck with you, either as an analyst, as a musician, as a listener, anything? Something that I could share with everyone is that whenever there is a cultural sense of mystery and magic around creativity, I think that that is usually bogus and that behind it there is practice there is knowledge especially creative tools you know i think that there's Mm. a certain form of capitalist fetishism around the tools of production in the world of music like if you want a certain bass sound you have to have the Moog synthesizer over the other synthesizers now i have a Moog synthesizer but he's someone that will show you that like actually the tools of creation are only so important and your understanding of then how to use them regardless of whether you have the $1 variety or the $1,000 variety of that creative tool. If you know how to use it very effectively, you can make exceptional work. That's what I really like from him. It's like 
to be a creative person, you don't need the highest end equipment, but you might need a lot of knowledge and practice around how to use what you have and you can make anything spectacular. And that's what he does in the world of music. Great answer. Well, that was Dan Worrell, who is on YouTube at Dan Worrell. Charlie, thank you so much for sharing these follows with us today. Before we go, let's make sure listeners know how to find you online. Where do you want them to follow you? I'm at Charlie Harding on Twitter, and our website is switchedonpop.com. Really just check out the podcast wherever you get podcasts. If you're listening to this now, I think you'll find it. That's what I like doing. I like making podcasts and talking about music, and I love chatting with you. Uh, so hope, I hope folks enjoy Switched on Pop. Definitely go search for Switched on Pop, whatever app you're in now. Follow me on Twitter at HeyHeyESJ, and don't forget to follow or subscribe to Follow Friday in your podcast app. If you like this episode, then check out the past Follow Friday interviews with Eric Malinsky from Imaginary Worlds, Rishikesh Hirway from Song Exploder, and The Oral Knots from YouTube. Follow Friday is a production of lightningpod.fm. Our theme music was written by me and performed by Yona Marie. Our show art was illustrated by Dodie Hermerwan, and our social media producer is Sydney Groden. Special thanks to our Big Fry Patreon backers, John and Justin. Visit patreon.com slash followfriday and chip in any amount to unlock the extra long version of this interview featuring a bonus follow recommendation from Charlie. That's all for this week. This is Eric Johnson reminding you to talk about people behind their backs. And when you do, (laughs) say something nice. I'll see you next Friday. One more thing before we go. Thank you to John and Justin from Transistor.fm for backing Follow Friday on Patreon. Transistor is an independent podcast hosting company with a simple, modern interface for uploading audio, distributing your podcast, and viewing analytics. You can also make as many podcasts on Transistor as you want for no extra cost, and you can invite additional users to access the show settings, upload episodes, view analytics, and more. Check them out at Transistor.fm.